0: Are you cranky because you're up with a toddler at night who would rather have a party than go to sleep? Can't get your child out of bed, out of your bed, and are you getting kicked in the back by the toddler all night because they won't sleep in their own bed? (laughs) A sleep-deprived parent is a cranky parent, and I am so thankful that we have Melanie Duvall on the podcast today to give us some sleep tips and, frankly, to save our sanity. Melanie has over 26 years of experience in the field of lactation, parent education, and infant sleep support. Melanie became passionate about healthy sleep for families after hearing the stories of sleep deprivation over and over again from new parents that she was working with. So she dove into the world of infant and postpartum sleep and began working as a night nanny in 2017. And is the owner of Goodnight Baby Montana, She has dedicated her career to helping families obtain healthy and happy sleep. Melanie is also a hard-of-hearing adult, and she was actually a previous guest on our podcast, so she's here for round two. If you want to hear Melanie talk about living life and growing up as a hard-of-hearing child and now a hard-of-hearing adult, go back and listen to episode 11 on this podcast, and I will link that in the show notes. It's also a really great and informative chat. So Melanie is back this time to talk to us all about baby and toddler sleep and she gives special tips to our listeners about how to support sleep in your deaf and hard of hearing child. Hey mama, welcome to Raising Deaf Kids. Do you want more ease in your daily life? Do you want to help your child learn language faster but have no idea where to start? Do you find yourself searching for how to learn sign language and best ways to practice speech goals. Hey, I'm Elaine. I'm a mom of three littles, two of whom are deaf. I remember when I received the hearing loss diagnosis for our child, there were so many decisions and information overload. I lacked clarity and confidence and yearned for ease and balance in our lives. It was then that I discovered strategies to support our kids' language development at home and I even helped them learn language faster. I can't wait to share it all with you. So put down that to-do list, close out that ASL app for now, and let's get started. Hey, have you been thinking about starting a podcast? Maybe you've been listening to podcasts and thinking, this podcast, and thinking, hey, I can do that. So if you have been thinking of starting a podcast, then I have a treat for you. So my podcast coach, Stephanie Gass, is hosting a special live five-day challenge. Sorry, <clears throat> little frog in my throat. That's right. I am not doing this podcasting thing on my own. I have a fantastic podcast coach who has helped me create a strategic and fun podcast that delivers all of this amazing content to my listeners twice a week. And because of Stephanie's programs, I've been able to quickly start and grow a podcast that aligns with the calling that God has put on my life. It's also fun and it's a hundred percent doable with three little kids running around at my feet all the time. <laughs> so I wanted to invite Steph to quickly, you know, jump on here and to share a little bit about her five day free boot camp and how you can sign up today. So go ahead and listen to Steph. She'll tell you how to sign up for this amazing free bootcamp. And I will put the link to sign up in the show notes. All right, Steph, take it away.
1: What's up, new friend? I'm Steph Gass. I know you just heard a little bit about me, but I wanted to personally come on and invite you to the Profitable Podcast Bootcamp. This is a five day challenge, so to speak, for those of you who are interested in podcasting or who already have a podcast and you wanna know how a podcast works to grow an audience or make money online. I promise you it's so worth your time. And this one hour per day live challenge is gonna give you everything you need to know about why podcasting works, how to make money from a podcast, how to make sales really easy, and so much more. We're giving away swag, door prizes. We even have scholarships to my courses and programs valued at over $10,000. So we just wanted to come on and invite you to be part of this challenge, head right now over to stephaniegass.com slash bootcamp. That's stephaniegass.com slash bootcamp and get registered right away. You'll get entered to win free swag. And the best part of all is you're gonna learn how podcasting can potentially be a way for you to truly grow, make an impact and income in an online business, and allow you to have that freedom and that fruit of not feeling like you are tied to social media 24-7 or having to do 100 different things to figure out a way to be successful for the kingdom of God. This is going to lay all of those pieces out for you in alignment with your faith. Again, stephaniegass.com slash bootcamp.
0: All right, welcome to the Raising Deaf Kids podcast. And today we have Melanie, you're back. I'm back. I'm so excited. You You are my first guest who has actually done a round two. We've talked about it with like most of the guests that have been on the show. And just like you and I talked about it because we were like, we had so much more to say, but you are the first one who we've actually booked and are doing a part two. So I'm really excited. I'm I'm really excited to be back. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and we I will link in the show notes the first episode that you and I did together, which was talking about your experience, like your personal experience with hearing loss. It was such a great episode you know, it's so helpful to parents just to understand, you know, hearing loss from, you know, the perspective of an adult when their kids are maybe experiencing the same thing, but can't like tell you yet because they're kids. But this time we are here to talk about your business. So I would love for you to tell us what your business is and, you know, a little bit, you know, a little bit of background, like how you got started in the business, which I'm actually curious about and like what it is that you do.
2: Perfect. So I own a Goodnight Baby in Montana. Goodnight baby, we provide basically a night nanny care for infants newborn through six months. And then we provide in-person sleep coaching for six months to 18 months. Although we have worked with children up to age five. So we have worked with toddlers, preschoolers, even young school age children to help them help everybody kind of get back on track to sleep. And so we currently serve Western and Central Montana. We have a team in Kalispell. And if you're not from Montana, this may not really make a lot of sense. But we have a team from Kalispell that serves Kalispell to Missoula. We have a team in Bozeman that serves Bozeman to Billings. So if you are familiar with Montana, you know that it's a really big state. So I would say we're currently serving about half of the state, the more populated side of the state, So, which is is pretty amazing would yeah. never have guessed that maybe something like this would thrive in rural communities and in a rural part of the country, but it definitely does. So so that's great. So how I got started in this, I have two grown children. My son is about to turn 27. He has a three-year-old child of his own. And then I also have a 23 year old daughter. So and mom for a long time and now I'm a grandmother. So super exciting. But 26, over 26 years ago, I gave birth to my son and I didn't really, excuse me, have a lot of support for our parenting style, not within my family, not within my circle of friends. And so I said, wouldn't it have been great if I would have had people support me on my parenting journey the way that I wanted to be supported. And so I started actually working first in the field of lactation and then in parent education. And so I taught classes on positive discipline, on all kinds of kid-related, parent-related things, um, on feeding your baby. And so I did that for a long time. And I did that both in private practice um, and also as well as in community health. So I've worked in the government side of it. I've worked in the private side of it. And then I would say probably about when my kids were a lot older, one of the things that I heard really from the very beginning, and I experienced myself was just being so tired, being so tired, not really understanding how infants sleep, how toddlers sleep, not really understanding how to help them sleep better. My own children did not sleep more than a four to four and a half hour stretch until they were over two and a half years old. And so I thought there has to be a better way. And there had to be a better way than just putting them in a room and shutting the door and hoping that things were okay by morning. And so I really kind of dove into infant sleep and learning about infant sleep. But what parents said all the time was, how come you can't just come help me? And I would say, well, you know, I work a full-time day job and I have kids of my own and, um so in 2017 I thought this is time it is time to walk the talk so to speak. And so <clears throat> despite having a full-time day job I started to take on nanny work with families. And I only had about 3 to 5 clients a year for the first few years and that was largely in part because I did work a full-time day job. And so I needed to be able to work both jobs Get some sleep have some time with my family i still had one child in high school and so i did that and then in 2020 when COVID happened the work that i was doing where i traveled a lot i traveled all over the state of montana working with teams of people who were helping care for youth and children who'd experienced trauma and victimization. and so in 2020 that all came to a screeching halt travel everywhere ceased and so i was home working, but I had a lot more flexibility in my time. And so I thought I'm going to take on more nighttime clients because there was more of a demand at that point. Really only people found out about me if they'd known somebody who'd hired me before. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go ahead and do this because I'd like to fill my time. And I'd like, this is something that I loved. It's something that I was passionate about, something that I care so much about working with new families, had been doing it for that point. Over two decades. And so I thought this is such a great opportunity. Well, when you let people know that you have more availability, it explodes. And so I was able to leave my day job and take this on full time, thinking that I would be able to manage it all. It didn't happen. I was working seven nights a week. I brought on a business partner. She was started working seven nights a week. And then slowly we have increased our team. And more, I would say about 75% of our team is now full-time employed. So working to help families get sleep, you know, all the way through that first couple years of life. So that's what I do. And it's, it's exciting and I love it. And by having a team, I feel like I get to help a lot more families get sleep. We get to teach a lot more families about sleep. That, of course, is, that that helps everybody. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So. And I can't believe that's so interesting in your story that your child did not sleep through the night until they were four years old. That is a long time. It was long to not sleep through the night. And I, I think it was. as a parent, you expect, you know, you expect at least a few months, like when you have a newborn, obviously that mm-hmm. you're going to get up in the night. I and, mean, you know, most people who have been around new- newborns expect that like they get up in the middle of the night, but I think you expect it to at some point end you know especially maybe worst case scenario by the time they're like 12 months but hopefully like sooner and then for a lot of parents it doesn't just like you and and they never you know kind of sleep for a really long time and I know I would love to share this statistic with parents that you shared to me just before we started recording of how much sleep (laughs) parents lose
2: It's it's quite a bit. So there's I've heard a a couple different numbers, but one number that I hear often is about 350 hours that are lost in the first year alone. 350 hours. That's a lot of sleep that gets missed and disappears. And so, if we can help families sleep better, we help babies sleep better. We help by helping babies. We help the rest of the family sleep better. It also gives us an opportunity to help parents understand what makes their sleep better. Maybe they are struggling a little bit with sleep, definitely in the postpartum period. We know that that is a universal experience. Sleep deprivation is across the board. And I just think it has to be better than that. I don't think it's enough to say, this is just how it is, and I'm just going to accept it. You know, you mentioned my kid's not sleeping. There's a reason why my children are almost four years apart. They're actually three years and 10 months apart because I thought of having multiple children were not able to sleep at night was so overwhelming to me. There is no way that I could even consider having a second child until I could get my first child on a much better routine. And so I understand like it's hard. And I talk to parents a lot about one, how to set up good sleep habits from the very beginning so that we don't maybe even need a sleep coach later on, but also those good sleep habits that we start early on last a lifetime, you know, when we get them going. So um, I should clarify Sleep issues are not unusual in my family. My youngest child was a sleepwalker. My husband's a sleepwalker. So, uh, you know, there there are certainly some other factors that came into play with my own children. But there are things that, you know, and this is true for all of us as parents. We look back and we say, oh, I could have done this better. I could have done this different if I'd only known. I do feel that way with my own children. Like I could have made different choices that would have certainly helped them to sleep better and all of us to sleep better.
0: So Yeah. I think you're the first person that I've met. that said like they had sleepwalkers in their house. What do you do with a sleepwalker? Was that weird or terrifying to you? Because I feel like that would, because I don't have any experience with it. Oh my gosh. I think if one of my kids or my husband started sleepwalking, that would terrify me. I'm, yeah. like, I'm not Today, well, I'm How happy... do you deal with that? I'm what happy to talk it?
2: about it. So I've been with my husband for 30 years. So I have a lot of experience uh, with him in particular. He really shows up when they are not getting enough sleep. That is the, I would say that's the number one precursor to sleepwalking is just a lack of good sleep. So he has known to move furniture or open cabinets Even one time tried to bring like patio furniture into the house. So you can't miss somebody being up and moving things around in the house and sleeping. A lot of times what that looks like as his partner, when I hear him get up in the night, I will usually say something to him. And if he responds appropriately, then I just roll over and go back to sleep. If he doesn't respond appropriately, then I know that I probably need to try to intervene so that he doesn't injure himself. I should, cl- I should tell you, he hasn't actually done it for a while. He, we had a really scary incident and I'm happy to share it with you because I think it's good to talk about sleepwalking. I was, we had a school level house and I was downstairs doing laundry. And at the time we had a new puppy and this was Christmas. And I heard what sounded like a very large crash in the house. I thought it was the puppy knocking over the Christmas tree. And so I went and I started to run upstairs and I saw my husband's feet in the kitchen. And I was like, he shouldn't even be up. Like he should be in bed. What is he doing? And I went around the corner. He actually had fallen while he was sleepwalking and hit his head on the counter on the way down. It took probably 45 minutes to really fully wake him up where I could assess what was, what, if he was okay, if he was not okay, if he needed to go to the ER but he had like cut the bridge of his nose. He had skinned up the side of his face. It's pretty scary. He hasn't slept a lot since then. So I don't know. I don't really know. He said he remembers that he remembers he was sleeping and he remembered having a leg cramp. And then the next thing was me waking him up. So the only thing I can think of is that he was walking. His legs started to cramp because he wasn't fully really aware of what was going on. It caused him to fall. And then hit his head. So that's pretty scary. And scary things can definitely happen with sleepwalkers. My daughter, on the other hand, it really ramped up during puberty. And so I do think that there is a correlation there. She was a little bit quieter and a little scarier, to be perfectly honest. She used to stand in my son's bedroom doorway in the middle of the night. And you can imagine that was pretty
0: frightening to him
2: we were no. so used that's to it. like we a no just...
0: for me I'm like if I'm asleep <laughs> and someone is just standing there like sleepwalking that's like a horror movie
2: yeah it I mean if you're not that's used an to absolute it. no for us a lot of times we would just tell her to go back to bed like that was always kind of the best thing that we did uh with either of them is just tell them to go back to bed and they would but I do know one night she stayed at my sister-in-law's house and I think that they just didn't really know that she did this. And my brother-in-law said he woke up and she's literally standing over the bed, staring at him. Yeah. And I said, well, what did you do? And he goes, I just asked her if she needed anything and she didn't respond. So I told her to go back to bed and she did. <laughs> so it, it can be. And definitely, you know, if you have a child that's a sleepwalker, keeping them safe is the most important thing. So like we would have a baby gate at the top of our stairs or around the corner from the stairs so that there was somewhere for her to stop so she wouldn't go down. We also, you know, having a monitor, it can definitely help because you can see, oh, did they get up? Do they need something? Like I said, asking them a question to find out if they are responsive will give you a good idea. Are they just getting up to use the bathroom? Do they need a glass of water? When they don't respond appropriately is when we usually take action. It's not very effective to try to wake them up. Like I said, when my husband fell, it took 45 minutes to wake him up. So Mm -hmm. it's really, we would just redirect back to bed and they would go back to bed. But yeah, it is, it is interesting and it does make things a little bit complicated with sleep.
0: Yeah. And, but yeah, but I mean, it sounds like also it makes perfect sense that you would eventually do a whole business around sleep because like this was like a core issue for you in different ways. But one thing I know that you mentioned, I know you said with your daughter, sleep, the sleepwalking seemed to ramp Mm -hmm. up during puberty, which like what doesn't at that time, especially with girls and like young women, but that you said something, correct me if I'm wrong, but that you thought with your husband, it ramps up more if, if he has maybe some days or sometime when he's not sleeping as well. So maybe it's like triggered by like not as good sleep, like leading up to that day, which Mm -hmm. made me think about. And maybe before we get into the tips real quick, we can talk to parents about what does a prolonged lack of sleep do to you and do to your child, like when your child and your baby isn't getting the sleep that they really need, and then you aren't getting the sleep. How does that show up in your daily life for you and your child? Sure,
2: that's a great question. And I've actually done presentations at conferences, especially in the postpartum period, because that's where we see sleep deprivation really hit the hardest for most people. So, you know how if you just get a bad night of sleep, your uh, temperament can often be off, you have a much shorter temper, your emotional regulation, kind of all of those things, your ability to concentrate. Uh, all those things can be affected with short-term sleep deprivation. Long-term sleep deprivation actually has much deeper and more significant effects. We know that people can suffer depression, they can suffer anxiety. One of the interesting things that I've learned is when we have a lot of sleep deprivation or when we've gone long periods without sleep, parts of our brain will shut down and fall asleep while we're technically awake or alert. So all of a sudden, I cannot think of the exact term because I don't have it in front of me. I think it's called microsleep. So protect itself. Your brain will start shutting off different parts for short periods of time. Microsleep. We think that that's actually what causes people like to get in car accidents when they um, haven't had any sleep, things like that. And I have even had that experience where I have felt like all of a sudden get kind of like not fully jerk wake parts of my brain feel jerk awake, it's a really unnerving feeling. And you can't decide or predict what parts of your brain are going to decide to shut down. So it makes microsleep pretty dangerous. Long-term sleep deprivation can actually lead to more significant mental health issues, including psychosis. There's an interesting, there are a lot of great Sleep studies uh, out there that can be read. But we do know that you are more likely to die actually from sleep deprivation than you are from lack of food. So, wow. not your brain not being able to sleep and get rest and process information from the day has a huge, huge long term effect on you. There was a study in the New York Times, hmm, I want to say maybe a year or two ago. I know that uh, I did a post, I've done two posts on on it, on my Facebook page, where we used to think that you could kind of like bank your sleep, or you could recover your sleep, if you could catch up, we now know that's not true. So when you are deprived of sleep, there's no way to get back or to try to fix it. And long term, we also know it leads to dementia, Alzheimer's, things like that. So we don't technically have the ability to repair our brain from sleep deprivation. So it's very important to me. The other thing that I about not just at conferences but with parents is the symptoms for sleep deprivation are almost identical to postpartum depression and so i truly believe that there is a deep link there between the two i will say in my own practice when i see families who have night nanny support who have nighttime support who can learn to understand infant sleep and how to maximize their sleep around it, we see lower incidence in our own practice of postpartum depression, which is really exciting. And I would love to spend more time on that and do more studies on that. That will have to come at a day when I'm not doing so much direct care. It would be interesting to see what if there's a correlation between that nighttime support and a lack of sleep deprivation and then a lot and then if we don't have as much postpartum depression so so yeah it's it's really quite interesting what starts to happen to us in our brain and our body truly when we aren't getting enough sleep it can lead to cardiovascular issues it can lead to all kinds of things so
0: yeah yeah
2: and i actually didn't know streaming
0: in from my window (laughs) Yeah, again. I actually did know usual. all those, yeah, all those statistics. I mean, I knew, you know, just like when I had my babies and maybe, you know, they weren't sleeping through the night for the first three months, usually my babies by about month three would start sleeping at least like seven hour stretches, which was yeah. great. Like if I got a seven hour stretch of sleep, that was better than like three hours. And you know, that that's kind of like a normal sure. sleep pattern. And mm-hmm. they kept stretching out from there. But like, I just, was cranky all the time. You know, you you yeah. have a less capacity, you know, I think like you were saying, to process your day, to have patience. Mm-hmm. And that impacts you when you are parenting your children during oh, the day. Sure. If you haven't had the sleep. And then also if your babies haven't had the sleep, I imagine that it's kind of the same thing. They're crankier, you know, and you, you kind of both have like less capacity to Yeah work with each other. And then that's, you know, kind of where a lot of issues happen too. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating, the research and the postpartum time is so hard anyway, Mm -hmm. that, you know, throwing in the lack of sleep is hard. So I'm curious for the parents, when is like an appropriate age that babies can start kind of like, sleep training or getting to where they can do longer stretches. So now obviously newborn babies, they need to wake up functionally yep. because they need to eat. You know, mm-hmm. but then once they get, I know our pediatrician told us, I found that to be true with my babies. Once they were able to put on enough weight and they were taking in more food than they yep. would sleep. It really has to do with like their bellies being full Yep, at yep. that age or not. You know what, when can parents expect that their kids, should start sleeping longer stretches and then when do they know that there's a potential problem
2: okay so uh, we don't do any sleep coaching like formal sleep coaching before six months a lot of times babies just are not just not developmentally appropriate when we think of sleep coaching techniques What we call sleep shaping, which is where we help babies understand the difference between daytime and nighttime sleep. We help them develop their circadian rhythm. We help them learn to sleep, fall asleep without, we will talk about sustainable and unsustainable sleep associations. But when we help them learn to fall asleep, basically independently, we can actually start that as early as six weeks. There are some important things to consider. You mentioned weight as one of them. That's a huge thing to think about. So I always tell parents we can start to see those longer stretches somewhere between 10 and 12 pounds. I used to say there was a time period, but you have a baby that's born at four pounds and you have a baby born at nine pounds. Those things are going to come into play at much different times. And so really it becomes a weight issue. So we want to make sure that babies are um, getting all of the nutrition that they need So whether that's their breastfeeding or bottle feeding or both, we want to make sure that they're taking in enough calories. We also want to ensure that they are growing appropriately so that they're starting to establish a curve. We want to make sure that that's happening. We don't want to kind of see them jumping all over the growth part. So those things need to happen. So they have to be feeding well. They have to be taking on weight. They have to be establishing a good growth curve. So really, I always say kind of right around six weeks, if all of the things are in place, we can kind of start with some things like laying babies. I always say, you know, yes, we need to lay babies flat, but we have to remember babies have had these nice little curved spines for months. And so when they're first here, laying completely flat on their back, while that is the recommended safe sleep guideline, it can be very difficult for them. So expecting them to sleep long periods flat on their back can be hard for babies. And so we know that some of that adjustment has to happen too. Usually in the first six weeks, we can help get feeding established. We can assess if there are any feeding or breastfeeding problems and then direct babies and families to uh, the appropriate providers if something is going on. We can generally start to see a curve become established um, right around six to eight weeks. Um, So there's a lot of things that Really, kind of come together right at that time. And so, we do what we call sleep shaping. And so, we, of course, we, we're swaddling babies because they're little, they need to be swaddled. So, they have, to have a lot of those reflexes. In fact, I'm going to do a whole post on
0: reflexes because newborn reflexes are so fascinating. They're so wild. They're so, so cute. Wild. Their little hands just like fly up in the air and they startle themselves all the time.
2: And it's yes, so cute. And it's It'd so appropriate.
0: Like, they think they're falling.
2: We do. Like, you're fine. Such an appropriate response though. And it does have really important yeah. things that it does. And so mm-hmm. we start by laying them down. We get, we watch for cues in like, are are they alert? Are they quiet? Are they getting sleepy? I always say it's good to start laying them down when they're getting drowsy, but still awake. It's un, very unnerving to older infants and toddlers and preschoolers when we hold them to sleep hold them to sleep hold them to sleep they fall asleep in our arms and then they wake up somewhere else and I always ask parents how would that make you feel if you fell asleep one place and you woke up somewhere else it would be really disorienting so I try to encourage parents not get into that habit rocking all of those things can still be part of your bedtime and nap time routine but they shouldn't be causing your baby to fall go all the way to sleep. So we start putting babies down when they're getting sleepy. We pay attention to wake windows. That's a whole nother conversation so that we're not missing those opportunities and allowing them to ramp up. They're down, they're quiet. We use sustainable sleep associations, such as sound machines, such as, you know, swaddles when they're little, sleep socks when they're bigger. Um, I think it's when they're much bigger. Uh, we can use things To kind of help guide them and help them understand that this is time to go to sleep during the day we don't allow for super long periods of sleep I usually say newborns typically don't have long periods so we want to make sure that we're getting shorter meaning an hour and a half two hours of sleep as opposed to a four-hour stretch which is what we want them to be having at night Um, we also want to help them get more calories in during the day things like that having time to play during the day so that they understand the difference between this is what daytime looks like this is what nighttime looks like so at nighttime when they wake up we need to attend to them either we need to feed them change them all of the above we don't turn all the lights on we don't spend a lot of time talking we help them get right back to sleep so that would be what kind of sleep shaping looks like and we usually start that as long as everything's in line, start that right around six weeks to help them get kind of established those routines because they're not born with a circadian rhythm. They're not born producing their own melatonin for sleep. They're not born producing cortisol to help them wake up in the morning. So we have to kind of guide them into that and guide parents into that too. So because we talk with parents a lot about how to help them get better sleep. It's not just about helping babies get better sleep.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I did all these things with my babies <laughs> that you were saying, and that. it did work. And I, but I just had it probably would have been easier to just have someone like you just tell me because I just did like a ton of research on it because sleep was really important to me. And I just function better, you know, when I can get sleep. And so I'm still understanding that the newborns wake up and stuff, but I did basically everything that you said pretty much to it. help them understand what was day, what was night. And it did work. And Mm -hmm. my babies were the four pounders. So it took them about three to three and a half months to be able to like gain enough weight where they would sleep, you know, five to seven hours at night, which I Mm -hmm. felt much better if I even just got like five to seven like consecutive hours. But then my little girl, it took her maybe like two months because she was seven pounds when she was born. And she was a good eater. You know, and so it, it does, like you said, at the beginning, it really depends on the amount of calories they're able to take in and how much they weigh mm-hmm. because it is a functional they need to like eat and fill their bellies and get those yep, calories absolutely. in. Absolutely. So I can't say it does work, but then I'm curious, okay, you know, so now we're up to like six months. What does yeah. sleep coaching look like to a six month baby or beyond if they're still not really, you know, getting those hours in at night? What is sleep coaching? You know, what does it look like? Are we just letting our babies cry? Like, what what are we doing? I know we're not.
2: (laughs) No, no, we're not.
0: That's a good question. And there are
2: lots of different techniques. So the beauty of doing in-person sleep coaching is that we really get to know the family and we really tailor techniques and the timeline and all of these things for that particular family. So we look at what is their parenting style? What have they done in the past? What are they doing in the future? What are their goals long-term? We always always ask families, what would you like it to be? What would you like bedtime to be when you have a two-year-old? What do you want nighttime sleep to look like when you have a two-year-old? Because those are the things that we need to start establishing now. They don't just magically appear that too, you have to kind of set them up for success from the beginning. So one of the first things we do is we make sure, we're not clinicians, but we do kind of evaluate and look for certain symptoms that could indicate that there may be a medical reason why these babies are waking so frequently. There can be, and we wanna make sure that those get addressed. Without addressing those things, without addressing babies who maybe are not getting enough nutrition, or babies who could potentially have enlarged tonsils and adenoids and sleep apnea or ear issues, hearing issues, or just if they have frequent ear infections, things like that. We want to make sure that those things are being addressed by their healthcare provider before we ever begin doing any kind of sleep coaching. I have worked with families in the past where those have been significant issues and we can use every technique in the world and these babies are not going to sleep because there's a medical reason that that they're waking frequently. So we wanna make sure that those things get addressed first. And so we typically will send an intake form first, which will help parents um, give us the information about what they're observing, uh, uh, maybe the questions and concerns that they have regarding their baby or toddler sleep. Um, then we do an in-person visit. And a lot of times uh, we can ask more in-depth questions. Sometimes we can actually hear how babies or toddlers are breathing. We can say, oh, I think we should have a a medical workup before we get started. We just want to make sure and rule anything out. And, And then we kind of, I come back and I make a plan based on all of that information. And so if, you know, this is a family who would like to continue bed sharing, which we don't necessarily recommend. And I would say the majority of our families are not doing that. But we can talk about what that looks like. We can talk about moving them from being bed sharing to just being co sleeping, which means sleeping in the same room but not in the same bed. We might look at, I've had instances where babies who were six months old were still in a swaddle, even though they were rolling. They were in a docketot, they were in a docketot in a bassinet, all of these things that we kind of address. And then we look at the techniques and we break them down and make a plan to do it. We do offer four different options for sleep coaching. And so depending on what a family needs or what their budget is, we may be doing pretty much hands off other than giving them a plan and guiding them, or it may be full sleep coaching, which looks like a hundred hours in their home, kind of really getting them through those first, that first big chunk of sleep coaching. Sometimes, depending on the extent of why their baby isn't sleeping, it may take multiple steps too. And that's okay. Sometimes we just go in, baby's going to bed great, nap and bedtime. They're just having a hard time transitioning sleep cycles at night and connecting those sleep cycles. And so really, it's just working on and fine tuning those pieces, really such individual experience that I hate to kind of generalize and say it all looks like this because it's just not true but we really truly believe that babies and toddlers need comfort and they need somebody to be there with them while they're learning all of these skills and so we really like that hands-on approach so no we don't personally recommend what we would think of as the cry it out method, where we put babies in the room and we shut the door and we never come back in. And we do get phone calls about that. And oftentimes, what I tell people is if that's what you would like to use, that's fine. And you are more than welcome to do that, but you don't need our support to make that happen. So it really kind of varies child to child. But some nights, it looks like me sitting next to a crib and holding a baby's hand or a toddler's hand through the crib and reassuring them and shushing and patting their back while they sometimes get mad, sometimes not, (laughs) and they fall asleep. But we do know that uh, gradually we don't have to sit in there with them. Gradually they're connecting their sleep cycles and doing great. I would love to talk a little bit about sleep cycles because I think there's this misconception too that when babies sleep through the night that they're sleeping solid. None of us actually sleep completely for a seven hour stretch or a 10 hour stretch or a 12 hour stretch. At the end of our sleep cycles, newborn sleep cycles look very different than older baby sleep cycles and adult sleep cycles. But at the end of the sleep cycle, our body does what we call a systems check. And so it will lightly wake up. will kind of go through, is everything functioning the way it's supposed to, right? Is my brain functioning. Okay. Is my heart being okay? Am I breathing? Okay. Then we go back to sleep as adults. We've learned to do that without even really thinking about it. We might turn over. We might pull the pillow underneath us a little bit better or pull the blankets up or kick them off. Babies don't necessarily do that. They don't really understand why they're waking up. And then depending on how they're doing, as far as independent sleep, they may not know that they can go back to sleep on their own. They may just go, oh my gosh, I need something. I need somebody. I need whatever. So helping them understand. Like I'm awake
0: now. Yeah.
2: Helping them understand. Like it's time to wake up
0: and it's four o'clock in the morning. Four o'clock
2: in the morning. (laughs) And I will say I have had toddlers who get up and they walk around their crib. 20 minutes or 30 minutes and then they lay down they go back to sleep and i always tell parents they're safe and they're quiet and they're not needing anything you don't have to respond to that it's perfectly okay for them to get up and do that we get up we get up walk to the bathroom we get up get a drink of water Mm -hmm. it's okay you want babies to system check that's a really important piece and it's one of the things that protects them from SIDS. So we don't want babies sleeping so solidly that they forget to do the system check. So, yeah, it is important that, they're, that they are kind of having that moment between sleep cycles. It's just how do we help them understand that they can transition right back to more sleep, that they don't have to be up, that they're okay, that they're safe. So, yeah, sleep cycles are, are really
0: interesting. That could
2: be a whole conversation, too.
0: <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And I remember learning about that. I mean, that was something that I learned about in my research too. Mm -hmm. exactly what you said about the sleep cycles with the babies and that, you know, if they wake up a little bit, it's because, you know, they completed their sleep cycle and they're in between sleep cycles and they just don't know that they can go back to sleep. They don't know what to do with it because they're babies. And yeah, and and it makes so much sense, because you're right, as adults, we do that too. But we just we don't think about it. Sometimes yeah. we don't even notice it. It's like, we're not awake enough to be super conscious, you, like, you don't remember it. Because um, you're still like, technically asleep. And like you said, it's like, probably you just like roll over, or something, mm-hmm. you know, you just like change position, and you go back to sleep. And I mean, we definitely want this to happen, because we want our yeah brain to check in with we all do. of us so yeah and that makes so much sense and yeah I remember you know when my babies were about that age around six to 12 months you know putting them to sleep and like rubbing their back and then like gently like lifting their yes. hand up <laughs> and then they would like move I would put the hand down and like, gently lift it up until I could like bring my whole hand up and if they were asleep enough that they didn't move I could like creep out of the room yeah but yeah, <laughs> or holding their little hand or something. But and does this yep. also can babies and you know toddler sleep change as they're going through developmental stages as well? Definitely. Definitely it can.
2: The first big one, and we've all heard of it, is the four-month sleep regression. It's really not a regression in terms of they're going backwards. It feels that way to us. So up until that time, babies actually only have two sleep cycles. They have a quiet sleep, and active sleep, and that's it. They don't dream in the way that we think of dreaming. They are not, one of the things that we do in REM sleep is we take our short-term memory and we turn it into long-term memory. We incorporate it into our learning and our brain. They don't really have that ability in that first few months. That's why they wake up so frequently, right? Their sleep cycles are short, like 45 minutes to an hour. And so it's appropriate. And like I said, we want them to wake up frequently. We don't want babies that are sleeping so deep that they forget to breathe. That's a huge concern. So we want them to wake up. Why it feels like a regression is developmentally, they're making huge strides. Their brain is growing at an exponential rate. And then now they are going from two sleep cycles depending on which research you read it could be four it could be five it's right in there but they go from two to that and they start having rem sleep so they start dreaming in the way that we think of dreaming they start converting short term memory to long term memory all of that you can imagine does a number on their little brains and on their sleep and how they're sleeping and how they're waking up and their sleep cycles and things like that and so we can expect some frequent waking during that period but Nice thing is, is and you may have experienced this because you really did a lot of sleep shaping in the beginning, even if you didn't know that's what you were doing. Is I find that that four month sleep regression ends up being a bump, and then they move on. And so each time when our kids learn new skills, either their brain brain development or their motor skills, we can kind of see that bump happen. When we set up good and healthy sleep habits in the beginning, that bump is much smaller. Where I think things can sometimes go sideways because when we ask parents of six-month-old, eight-month-old, 10-month-old, and we say, tell me about the beginning, and they might say, oh my goodness, when we started, they were such a great sleeper. They were sleeping in their bed. They started sleeping, you know, three-hour stretches and then four-hour stretches, and then they turned four months and everything went crazy. And I always say, so tell me how you responded to the changes in their sleep. I hear very frequently. I started rocking them. I started feeding them. I start. I started bringing them into my bed because we are creatures who want to take the easiest and fastest route. And I can't fault a single parent for this. I just had a conversation with mom yesterday about this.
1: I or did even the like the
2: nurturing. Thing.
1: You right. know, when it's we moms want to and it's our babies.
0: babies, it's like. They need me, which I I understand. And I I talk to a lot of parents who are like this too, that forgo sleep and kind of prolong the sleep issues because they just can't not go in. Like they just want to comfort so much. And I agree with you that there is a balance. You don't want them just like crying and upset, but there is a balance in maybe making like a little bit of noise and seeing if they can like gradually yes. do it themselves, obviously with like checking in on them, not right. just shutting the door and never, but from what I understand that doing a lot of these things, like keeps the kids awake longer. It does. And we should come for babies. We definitely should be
2: responsive to them, but in our mind, we're tired. We want them to go back to sleep as quickly as possible. And so we're gonna use whatever we have to, to make that happen. And so we start to create unsustainable sleep associations, right? So we bring them into our beds, we rock mm-hmm. them, we might feed them even though they're not hungry. So they're only eating an ounce and then they're going back to sleep. Yeah. Those things, this is also, because we're converting short-term memory to long-term memory, This is also a period when babies start to form habits and so we very unintentionally can self-sabotage their sleep and our sleep equally by creating these habits to help them fall back to sleep because they're going through this brain growth and so that can look like a lot of things like i said and so now we we and we think it's going to be short term we think, okay, I'm just going to do this for the next week and then everything will be okay. Or I'm just going to do this a little bit longer and then everything will be okay. And then those habits become stronger and stronger. And then we get the calls at six months, eight months, 10 months, one year. And they say, I really didn't intend for this to happen, but I don't know now how to fix it. And so we start to replace those unsustainable sleep associations with sustainable ones. So I don't believe any sleep associations are good or bad. They are either sustainable, meaning we can use them long term and everybody can get sleep or they're unsustainable because they are um, affecting our, ourselves, our babies, other members of the family in a way that's not positive or helpful. So some families, I, you know, they'll say, well, I really want to rock my baby. I want to rock babies too. In fact, it's one of the things that I love most about being a night nanny. It's holding babies and rocking babies. Yeah. Um and we can, such do a that sweet, job. we can do that when they're awake. And I say, if whatever you're committing to right now, understand that you're committing to for three to four years. So if you're like, I really want my baby to sleep with me now, that's the thing that you're committing to. And it's okay if you want to do that. Be honest about if you want to do that or not. I want to rock my baby. That's great. You should rock your baby. You should rock your baby every opportunity that you get because they're only babies for a short time. But understand if you're committing to that being the sleep association, then you might be doing it for several years. I always say rocking is a wonderful way to prepare for sleep. And it's great to have that as part of your sleep routine, but you don't necessarily need to rock them to sleep. If that makes sense.
0: No, it does, because that's actually exactly what we did with our babies, you know, by the time they, you know, were, I guess, probably about four months when they were sleeping the longer stretches at night, that's what we did, we established, you know, with our first one then did it with our other ones, like a little nighttime routine with okay. our babies. And yeah, you know, we would, you know, one of us, it would be only one of us in there at a time, whoever, you know, we traded off whoever mm-hmm. wanted to be with the baby at that time.
1: I whoever hadn't that. seen the
0: baby as much like what you know we trade yeah. and we still trade off with our kids our three kids we still have like a very specific routine and we put them to sleep but we trade off like who puts them to sleep based on like who they either ask for or like you know yeah. we haven't like been with them because it's kind of also our like individual time with each kid too mm-hmm. um like in their own room and yeah that's exactly what we did with our babies we would like put on their pajamas we would put on I use like an amber light the lamp so like a softer light I you know I didn't have on the overhead light and we would read like two or three baby books Mm to them whether or not they're paying attention or not I don't know it was fun though you you pay attention to the
2: rhythm of speech so it is important to read them
0: (laughs) yeah 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 it is and so we would read like two or three little baby books to them and then turn off the light and rock Mm -hmm. them a little bit maybe sing to them and then But to your point, we didn't rock them fully to sleep. We would still put them into their cribs, drowsy, Mm -hmm. but not fully asleep. And then, you know, say good night, I love you and leave the room. And then they would put themselves to sleep the rest of the way. So that, and that that was still a great way to incorporate the rocking and like kind of bonding and Mm -hmm. doing like a nighttime routine with your kid. But still allowing them an opportunity to practice putting themselves to sleep, and we still do mm-hmm. it now. Like we kind of still do the same routine with our kids now. We're seven, five, and two and a half, and I mean we all go. They all go into their bedrooms at a certain time of night to mm-hmm. play individually, and then we go into their rooms and we read to them. Now they know when they go and like pick out their own books, like two to three books. I love it. And then you know we turn off the light and we lay with them. For a few minutes and then we say okay love you good night and we leave the room and they don't come out they put themselves to sleep and we're not laying with them until they go to sleep none of my kids are actually asleep when I'm laying with them it's just like talking to them you know you're laying them talk to us you're asking them about their day and you're just cuddling a little bit and then we leave the room but because we've been doing this since they were four months old they they put themselves to sleep even now, so that love does it. to your point show that if you start that routine, it makes it easier and it does continue on. You know when they're older and they they don't come in and out of their room. They know like it's time to go to bed, and they go to bed and they yeah. and they can put themselves to sleep. They right. don't need us to lay there until they go to sleep, which, which is I love. Yeah, I love and
2: I there is you know. Everybody asks me when we talk about sleep cooking, is they going to be crying? Everybody asks that. Even if you get the book, sorry, I'm off and I'm coughing.
0: You're good. I know. I understand because mamas, and I understand because I am one, you get right nervous about your baby crying too much because you're you like, upset, you or you they do. like traumatized. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's really family. hard.
2: And so we do talk about crying. We talk about different types of crying. We talk about why your baby is crying. Even the author of the no cry sleep solution says there will be some crying. That's just the nature of it. We're asking them to do something that they haven't done that they probably don't want to do. And even though we're there and we're reassuring them and we're giving them all of the things that we, that they need, it can still be hard for them to transition to something different and that's okay. But I find when we can establish those habits much earlier, like what you experienced, there's far less, if any, crying associated with sleep, because they don't know anything different in their experience. They don't know anything different than falling asleep independently. They don't know anything different than transitioning their sleep cycles. And so the best way to minimize crying around sleep and sleep coaching is to start those habits as early as possible when it's appropriate. Um, developmentally, uh, size-wise, growth-wise, nourishment-wise, all of those things, like we talked about. Um, yeah. But we, we talk about, like I said, different types of crying, why your baby's crying, what to expect in the first three nights. Those are when we see the crying really maximize. The other thing I tell parents is that, sorry, once I start talking them, I know them, is that the more consistent that you can be through the sleep working period, When you respond exactly the same way every time, we minimize confusion. Babies start to understand what the expectation is. But if we regress, if we go backwards, if we start to fall back into some of those other habits, um, then what we're we're doing is actually making it harder on them. And we're having to continually start over. So the more consistent we can be through either sleep shaping or the sleep coaching process, the easier it is for babies to understand what's happening and what the expectation is. All children, all babies want to know what's happening next. So the more that we can make that clear to them, the easier these things become for them.
0: So, yeah. And I love that you, as like part of what you do, you not only help parents like find a better routine and you know get their kids and babies like sleeping longer and kind of sort out all the routines and get them on a better routine is that you do so much parent education too so you're not just giving the plan you're telling them like why this works why this doesn't work you know what this means what that means so the parents you know going forward after you've left the house feel you know empowered to be able to like longer term, like, you know, make their own decisions and, you know, figure it out with their kids as well. And I would like to know, real quick, before we get into a few tips for deaf and hard of hearing kids, how do parents feel? Is it weird to have (laughs) someone in your house when you're sleeping? So (laughs) when you do in in person, that means that you're going into the house at night, correct, and helping them like get their babies or kids like on a you know, like a better routine, but you're there and everybody else is sleeping. Is that weird that like everyone else is sleeping? Is it weird for the parents or are the parents just like, I'm so tired, I don't care. <laughs> what time do you leave in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the info that we need.
2: <laughs> I think one, we're pretty clear that this is what we do. So I I don't know that people would reach out to us. If yeah. They, if They were like, I absolutely do not want somebody in my home. I think what it can be very helpful for parents. Now we're talking sleep coaching, not sleep shaping, because that's yes. a little bit different. So let's talk sleep coaching six months and up. A lot of times they are just really struggling with how to implement the techniques. I find that there are lots of parents who do reading and they understand what the sleep coaching techniques are. They understand, they've read tons of books on how to implement them, but to go from something on a piece of paper to actually seeing it in practice and being able to implement it yourself can be a completely different ballgame. So parents, you know, just like plans are different for each family and babies are different with each family, parents respond differently in each family. We do have parents who are like, Sayonara, I'm going to bed, I'm out of here, I'm tired. You just do what you have to do. I always tell parents, keep your monitors on. You You should feel comfortable and you should be able to observe everything that we're doing with your baby. So one, you can see the technique implemented. You can see exactly how we're responding to your baby. It also can be very reassuring to know that no, we're not leaving babies to cry. We're not forcing babies to lay down. Because parents will say, well, what if they stand up? And I'm like, it's okay if they stand up. We'll address that. I don't believe in forcing babies down and holding babies down. That's not a technique we'd use or recommend to anyone, even when people are doing it for their own babies. So sometimes they're observing from afar. Sometimes I've had parents who literally stand outside the bedroom door. Sometimes parents are implementing the technique and we're standing there next to them guiding them as they're doing it and reassuring them i spend a lot of time like i said talking about what crying looks like talking about different types of crying and so i might be standing next to mom outside the door as we're about to go in and we say okay this is protest crying and this is what this means and this is what this looks like and this is how we're going to respond to that or i i'll say because when when we get a little bit further along we'll give the babies a bit of time, sometimes five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, depending on the age of the baby and where they're at. And so I have a very hard and fast rule. If changing cries or if the cries change in any way or they escalate, it doesn't matter what the timer says you're going in to respond to your baby because it could be that something is what else is going on. They could be sick. could I've had babies vomit before. They could be because they're already sick. I've had babies who have a poopy diaper and you won't know if you don't go in there to respond to that. So it might be us standing outside the door and I'll say, okay, let's go in. And then they respond. It really varies from parent to parent. The largest sleep package, which I said is 100 hours, is five days of us coming in and we are implementing the technique. And then we leave and parents do two days on their own the technique themselves, and then we come back and do another five days or five nights. And that allows us to kind of walk the parent through it. The parent can say, this is what worked. This is what didn't work. This is what felt good. This is where I really struggled. Sometimes parents even say, man, I totally blew it. Like I picked them up. I took them out of their room, whatever. And we say, okay, that's okay. Let's just, we're going to go back to the basics. But that gives us a chance to kind of come back in and refine and kind of get everything Polished off uh, before we let them go on their own. And so it varies from parent to parent. Like I said, some parents are like, I'm out of here. I'm so tired. I'm going to sleep. And some parents want to be all hands on and involved. They just want somebody standing there, guiding them, reassuring them, walking them through the process. So, yeah. So it looks different for different families. That's why it's hard to kind of generalize what in person sleep coaching looks like. So,
0: yeah. But no, but I love that. And I love that, yeah, you tailor it. You have like a framework and then you tailor it to what the specific needs of the family which is fantastic so what are since we are on the raising deaf kids podcast (laughs) we're talking (laughs) about a lot of kids with hearing loss although you know parents you know like me have kids with hearing loss and they have other kids without hearing loss so all of this is applicable to different families but are there different a few different considerations when you're talking about a child or a baby who has hearing loss who can't hear you at right. night so the baby can't hear you or the child like my boys don't wear their cochlears at night because it's not comfortable I Me mean, kids don't wear their cochlears don't wear their Absolutely. hearing aids obviously and so then you know i i've heard a lot of parents talk it becomes a concern of leaving your kids too long or what do we do and being sensitive to the fact that like we don't want our kids to be afraid because you know, unlike my hearing two-year-old, she can hear me like coming up the stairs, coming in. Right. If they're upset, they can't hear if you're like coming or not. You know what I mean? Right, right. Um, Well, there are are different
2: techniques that we can use. Uh, I highly, highly recommend more um, in-person hands-on techniques. So those can be things like what we call camping out. So I've had parents who stay in the room. Um, If you've seen the nugget couches, they are your friend. If you're doing camping out, that might mean that in those first few days, we're actually staying right next to the crib uh, for the entire process so that we can respond immediately to them. But we can also, like we talked about before we got on the podcast, you can't yell to them through the door or you can't talk to them through the monitor because they're not going to hear you. It's not going to be comforting or reassuring. So making sure that you understand that you need to The very hands-on approach for sleeping kiddos who can't hear, and as somebody who also does not wear hearing aids at night, I can't hear people talking to me either. So I want you want to make sure that understand that you're right
0: there, especially with because yeah. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt you, but just so we know, you have hearing loss yourself. In case people like haven't (laughs) listened (laughs) to the other episode, which we are going to link, but you also like have hearing loss yourself, so you also kind of. Like relate to this personally? (laughs) Yes, I do.
2: And I even, as a child, I I was obviously scared of the dark. Part of my fear of the dark is that I just I can't hear anything approaching me, so I don't know what's in there. But as a child, I yelled for my mom. Really, into my preteen years, she couldn't yell back to me, even though she was right across the hall. I couldn't hear her. She would have to physically get up and come in and reassure whatever it was I needed. I guess I'm, yeah. I wasn't a great sleep breather, <laughs> but you want to make sure that the techniques that you're using are hands-on techniques so that you are with them. I would even recommend if you're, when you get to the point, when you're not camping out in there anymore and you're moving outside of the door, that I recommend sleeping in a very close proximity to that room so that you can respond much quicker to them because, like you said, they're not going to hear you coming up the stairs, they're not going to hear you calling to them, so you want to be able to respond in a more timely manner, which can be difficult depending on the layout of your house. Other thing I like for older toddlers Kiddos who have already transitioned to a bed, because you had asked me earlier, what if they get out of bed? You can't just tell them go back, you know, go back to bed. There's a couple things that I really love to use for hard of hearing kiddos and deaf kiddos. The hatch light is probably by far one of my favorites. You can actually program them to change color when it's time for them to get out of bed. So you can have it set so that it's red during the night. And we always think, oh, red light's not good for sleep. It's actually great. That's why we use red lights for chickens used to be a chicken 4-H leader so I know a lot about chickens too but you can have it red and then when it's like you can say okay at seven o'clock you can get out of bed then you have it just turned to yellow at seven o'clock and then they know okay I can get out of bed it's time for me to get up and that's totally fine so patch light is a great way to help them the other thing is we always then when they're getting out of bed is we do what we call the silent return so where A lot of us could say go back to bed it's still bedtime go to bed you will have to physically get up and walk back to bed and with the silent return whether your child is deaf or hard of hearing or fully hearing it i still don't recommend doing a lot of conversation we don't want to engage kids a lot at night we don't want to give them like reward for being up so when they come in our room they, they will wake us up. Don't, don't worry about that. We can get down. We walk them back to their room, make them stay in their bed, and we go out. Um, so those are two techniques I really love for kiddos who already transition into their bed. Silent return, very beginning of sleep coaching. Um, we start, of course, with camping out. We move outside of their room. Uh, people say, well, how do you do sleep coaching? With kids, Like, do you pick kids up and put them back in bed? And I said, I walk kids back to bed just like you do. So if I start out in their room, sometimes in a chair, when they get out of bed, I walk them back into their bed and then I'm in the hallway and I walk them back into bed and then I'm in the living room and I walk them back to bed. So it's the same, it's the same, but it'd be really important that you understand that even though you're tired and you want to lay in bed and it would be so wonderful to just yell, yell through the monitor they are not going to hear you they're not going to respond to you so having those hands-on techniques for sleep coaching are going to be really important when you talk about uh the difference with in-person sleep coaching and just giving somebody a plan it's actually why we call ourselves sleep coaches and not sleep consultants i always feel like that i know a lot of great sleep consultants so i'm not missing what they do at all we do a little bit of sleep consulting because some families they just want us to write the plan and then we do remote follow-up and that's great but we call what we do sleep coaching you know a coach is somebody who comes alongside of you a coach is somebody who has a lot of interaction with you through the process there's a very distinct difference between what sleep coaching looks like what we do and what sleep consultants do you know i have friends who are sleep consultants and they serve families all over the world And while I would love to do that, it's not super practical when we need to go into people's homes. But coaching looks very different than consulting. First of all, we're available to families 24 hours a day during the coaching process. And so I don't have set office hours. Probably would help me if i did but i don't have set office hours so families can reach me at two o'clock in the morning if maybe they're implementing the techniques themselves now and they're they're having a struggle at two o'clock in the morning it's perfectly okay to reach out i don't know any sleep consultants that are like yeah call me at two o'clock in the morning none of them are saying that so there is a definitely a difference when you're looking for somebody to help you with sleep i would say if you have a child that's hard of hearing or deaf you want to make sure that whoever you're working with is fully aware of that and full and well-versed in techniques for those children, because there are lots of techniques out there that are just not going to be helpful or effective and are going to probably just cause more upset, more confusion for everybody involved. Um, For older kiddos, we talked about, is it strange when I come in? Well, Even when I have coached children up to age five, there's a lot of pre work that happens before I come into someone's home because I am a stranger to your child. And so we want to make sure that I've had a chance to meet your child and talk with them, and especially older babies and toddlers. We do like, I might go over there and spend some time talking about what we're going to do now. We're going to, you know, we might make a little book. We might do some role playing with their stuffies, things like that to help them. And all of those techniques are going to be great for kids who are hard of hearing or deaf to understand what, what we're going to, what we're moving towards and what the expectation is. So so yeah, that answer that question.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, that, that was great. The hatch light is a really great, I love it. That's a really great suggestion. I'm going to put that in the in the show notes because yeah that is a visual signal honestly even for kids who don't have hearing loss just like a signal of okay like you can get out of your room (laughs) now and not before this yeah so that they can stay in and you know and and that's what we've encouraged our kids and talked about it before that like to like play with their toys a little bit in their rooms before they come out um you know and kind, kind of like self-entertain a little bit before they just come like running straight to us but you know that's been a process of like helping them do that too but your job sounds so fun you get to like hold babies rock babies play with stuffed animals I do I do it It is
2: so great it is the best job and I'll tell you I especially since I made this full transition over to doing this I don't really feel like I work (laughs) That's <laughs> you know, um, that's so it's, fun. It's such a wonderful reward to see parents going from struggling with sleep, struggling with their own emotions, sometimes feelings of resentment. Like, I want to be really honest with parents and talk about, yeah, there are times when you're like standing over that crib and you're just like, oh my gosh, go to sleep. And you would give anything to make them go to sleep. I understand those feelings happen, but to see a family go from that, to everybody sleeping well, it's so re- incredibly rewarding to you when they're like, oh my gosh, my baby slept. Oh my gosh, I slept um, from a night nanny perspective. When families tell us I feel fully present during the day because I have been able to sleep at night. So I feel fully present with my baby. I feel fully present with my partner, you know, because I don't know about you, but those first weeks, I don't remember a whole lot. It just feels like a big, giant blur. And I think now what I would have given to have really been able to take all of those moments in, that would have been huge, huge.
0: Yeah. And I was just going to say that, Melanie, what I love about what you do is just what you said, that you you know, are helping families you know, interact better during the daytime, because sleep is so important. And something that I think we just don't realize until we don't get it. Sure. Um, how big of an impact it makes on our life in the daytime and being able to like function at a higher level, you know, have a longer patience during the day, you know, be able to interact with people that you just can't like, do with prolonged you know, not getting sleep for a long prolonged period of time. Yeah. yeah. So you are really helping families on, you know, a deeper level than just getting sleep. It really impacts how the family works together, you know, during the rest of the waking hours. And I think that's so True. fantastic. What I would love for you to do, last thing we'll do is tell families where they can find you and how they can work with you. Perfect. Cause we need to get so- these families sleeping. <laughs> So you can find us, we have a, face, a Facebook
2: page, it's Goodnight, I can't remember, one of them is Goodnight Baby MP, either Instagram or Facebook, and the other one is Goodnight Baby Montana, but if you search Goodnight Baby Montana, you'll find us. We also do have a website, goodnightbabymp.com. and we are going, right now all of our classes are in person, we will be transitioning all of those into an online format. So including our most popular class, which is Secrets of a Night Nanny. And and somebody asked me, are you going to have a podcast called Secrets of a Night Nanny? And I said, maybe someday. I would love to. I would love to talk. I could talk about sleep. There are so many intricacies of sleep. I could talk about it all the time. So you can find us on the website. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. We're a little bit on TikTok. I'm a little older so tiktok has been a little hard to navigate um, but the courses will be coming up There will be courses for parents on sleep at different stages there will also be courses for professionals who maybe they're already sleep consultants and they want to transition to doing in-person work or we're going to be offering this new and exciting certification to be an infant sleep specialist where you're going to know All the important things, all the things you need to know, newborn to 18 months. And we're super excited about that. So those things will be coming out right after the first of the year. So yeah.
0: (laughs) I love that. Yeah. And we will link everything in the show notes so that people can find you. Definitely follow everything that Melanie has so that you know about this, you know, specialist thing, because maybe parents. Maybe that's something they want to do. Maybe they did figure out baby sleep and they want to help other parents or could parents just take it to understand more about baby sleep for their own kids too? You certainly could. could.
2: There's going to be a lot of coaching aspects in it as well. So you certainly could as a parent, if you really wanted to do that, I'm hoping to cover like the important parent things in the parent classes, but I would never discourage anyone from taking additional courses and learning more information it's going to be a pretty in depth course on sleep during that first 18 months and helping parents to get more sleep and then how to translate all of that information into coaching and how to do that as an in-person coach which looks very different than a lot of the sleep consultant courses that are out there so so and not i mean i am a sleep consultant so i'm not too you know, say that any of that's not good, it's all great. And there are families who need a wide variety of support. And so I think being able to offer different types of support for different types of families is really important. And uh, definitely the more sleep help we have out there, the market is not saturated by any means. So the more sleep that we have out there, the better all of our
0: families are going to be and the healthier all of our families are going to be. For sure. I love that. I love that so much. Thank you, Melanie, for coming on the podcast for round two. Come on as many times it. as you like. <laughs> I love having you on. You're so fun to talk to. And you give such love great to information on. to our parents.
2: <laughs> I would love to come on and talk more about sleep. We can even talk about specific topics. You know, We could have one that was just specifically for what does sleep coaching look like for um, families who have infants and children that are hard of hearing and deaf. So I would love to do that.
0: I love it. Thank you so much for coming on today, Melanie. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, Mama. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, would you take 30 seconds and subscribe to this podcast? I never want you to miss an episode and to be without valuable information to help you and your family. Also, please leave a quick written review for the show on Apple Podcasts. It lights me up to know this podcast is helping you. Now go check off the rest of your to-do so you can love on your family today, and I'll meet you here every Tuesday and Thursday for podcast episodes to support your whole family in language learning. Ciao, mama!